Care Alive podcast with me, Phyllis McKenzie. If you're new here, make sure before you begin, check out all the links in the description for today's guest and also mine. Keep up with all previous episodes and also upcoming episodes. But today, as always, we have a new guest joining us. And this guest today, once again, is an author. We have a lot of authors here on the podcast. But for the first time ever, we have a series author for the first time in this year actually a serious author he has written a lot of very fun books but i want him to talk about it on his own i don't want to give any spoilers so ladies and gentlemen presenting to you it's jb hi jay hey how are you thank you very much for having me on the show i appreciate your time today Thank you so much. I didn't want to spoil anything. I just want you to introduce yourself in a nutshell. Who are you? Yeah, sure. So I am an author of uh, the Warminster Saga, which is an epic fantasy meets dark fantasy uh, series, um, which is a four-book series. The first two books are out. I know we're going to talk about them in a little bit. Third one comes out here in July of 2023, and the final book will be out closer to the holidays of this year, and we'll finish up the series um, but if you're a fan of uh, Lord of the Rings or Dungeons and Dragons or you've enjoyed Game of Thrones, that's the kind of genre I write in and the type of books you'll expect. So they're pretty deep dives into the history of the realm uh, and deep character explanations uh, where you begin primarily, you know, with, um, you know, a handful of heroes and one very bad villain. Uh, and you follow them through the four book series. So that's a little bit about the Warminster saga. Me as an author, uh, I started my authorship during COVID. Uh, you know, I'm an entrepreneur by trade. So I have a number of businesses that I own. And when, uh, COVID hit, uh, I had nothing to do. And I'm one of those people that have to have something to do all the time. Uh, and my wife like wagged a finger at me and said, no, you're not sitting around doing nothing. You're going to drive me crazy. Do something. And writing a book was on my bucket list of things to do. So uh, I sat down and I wrote what I thought was going to be a single book. Uh, and it turned out that in order to get it published, um, my publisher wanted it to be a series. And frankly, it makes sense. In my genre, almost all, uh, you know, books are part of a series. Uh, so for me, I had to make a commitment to do that. And, you know, three years later, I'm here now, almost at the end of the series, transitioning into my career as an author and having a fun time doing it. So that's how... It kind of started and mm-hmm. and where it's headed, the trajectory. So it's been a lot of fun so far. Yeah, actually, you're not alone because also this podcast began during COVID. So yeah. we didn't have things to do. School was closed. Everything was shut down or stuck in the house. And I don't know how to stay still. I love to stay indoors, but I don't know how to just stay still and do nothing. So Caroline was born. <laughs> so I do understand how you began your writing process. But why did you choose this genre? You know, you are the well, first author in your genre who has been on this show. Well, for, for a few reasons. First is uh, I've been a fan of it for a long time. Uh, when I was uh, younger uh, and still in, in you know school, you know, I had, a, um, I had a, an English teacher that read us The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings for the last month or month and a half. Of school, mm-hmm. I don't know how I got permission to do it, uh, but I was in fourth grade and uh, I fell in love with the genre. Uh, and that Christmas, I asked my uncle, who was um, like a second father to me, I asked him for a copy of The Hobbit uh, for Christmas, and he ended up getting me not only a copy of The Hobbit, but he also bought me my first box set of Dungeons and Dragons. 
so we could play. And, and my uncle and I had a kind of a special relationship. He was paralyzed in the war. He was a Marine. And when he got home, he had very limited things that he could do. Uh, and one of the things he could do was write. So at a very young age, I was watching him write things for magazines and like Pulp Fiction and serials and stuff like that, mostly in the horror genre, you know, or suspense genre. Yeah. You know, but for me, I could never get away from fantasy or sci-fi. I just fell in love with it. Uh, and so the other thing that we ended up doing when I was younger was we started playing Dungeons and Dragons. It was a form of escapism for, for him, you know, out of his paralysis. It was a way that he could be somebody else and kind of step out in his own imagination. And it helped me grow my own uh, imagination. And so we started playing the game. And what I did was I kind of memorialized within the novels, you know, a, a trip of many of those characters and villains and campaigns that we had had during our role-playing sessions. Um, it's, doesn't, it's not exactly the same fit, but, you know, it made for a good, you know, a sort of a kickstart to the story, which then became, you know, just like a D&D campaign. It went on, um, you know, if you're familiar with the game and or ever played it or played video games where you level up, it was the same thing. It started out with the characters that, you know, needed to, to grow, whether it was personally or through their skill sets to defeat the, the big bad evil guy. You know, and in this case, the big boss is somebody that I had faced off in one of my D&D campaigns and liked it well enough, you know, that I created my own world around it. You know, as as, as you know, I'm not allowed to use um, many of the same forms and functions that come with the game. So I created the realm of Warminster and my monsters are unique. My characters are unique. The races within are unique. The magic system's unique. And it's just been a lot of fun. So it was it was a, you know, part part answer to your question is, just, you know, I've always loved the genre best. The other part was I kind of grew up in it, you know, and it was, I think, the passion that my uncle brought to it and, you know, sort of, you know, what he left me with, I decided to kind of memorialize into this uh, this series, and it's really kind of taken off. Mm-hmm. You know, you've mentioned D&D a lot, and I just wanted to say I've never played it. I don't even know how <laughs> the game goes, but I've always wanted to, because anybody I know when I was growing up was like, oh, D&D this, D&D that. And those are not even friends. They're people from online. These are online friends. And I was like, I want to play this game. If there's something I want in life, it's to learn how to play Dungeons and Dragons. And you cannot (laughs) imagine the high that I was at when I saw the movie. Because I'm like, if the movie is so good, what about the game? The the game must be engaging as well. (laughs) So there are a lot of things that I find similar here. Also, with the Lord of the Rings, I, I really... I, when it comes to classifying, I could classify the Lord of the Rings higher than the Hobbit itself. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I don't know why the three, the first three movies were better than the Hobbit. I I know some people will say otherwise, but I see the other way around. So if your books are somewhat like that, if your books are the same, are on the same path, puddling up the same river with the Lord. The Rings and D&D, I promise you, <laughs> they're going to be one of my favorite books yet. <laughs> because well, I, I read are. a lot. I read yeah. a lot. Oh. Yeah, but it's I can hard tell you have authors on your show all the time. I enjoy. Yeah. yeah well, it's look, hard. if you have guys like me on your show, it, it, you know, I know that you must enjoy reading, so that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm an author, yeah, and, and I love reading as well. So, yeah. finding a book that you can channel with a book that you can have on the shelf and say, you know what, that book, that's my collector's item. I love that book so much that it's now a collector's item. That's how 
view most of my books, like The Lord of the Rings and also The Hobbit, Harry Potter, several, several of the Stephen King books and also R.L. Stein. I've been trying to get him on this show, but it's hard. It's hard to get that man. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. hard to book <laughs> him. <laughs> it really I would is. Imagine. Yeah, but finding others like you who have books that are not what people are gonna think of when they walk into the bookstore but it's on the same path it's it's refreshing it's new and it's something personal also to the author because you can proudly say you know what if you love Stephen King you're gonna love my book if you love TRR you're gonna love my book if you love Arl Stein you're gonna love my book so I respect others like you a lot <laughs> well thank you and and I uh, I pattern myself on um authors like that they were sort of my heroes in the genre right so you know for me i mean tolkien had a way of when he wrote lord of the rings and when he wrote the hobbit uh, he created his own world you know he was basically the grandfather of the fantasy genre like before him you had many folk tales and and lore and legends and stuff like that that were told but for the most part you know when he created middle earth uh that that genre of book was created and all of us follow in his footsteps in my opinion uh, and you're right. I mean, I mm-hmm. like, look, Dungeons and Dragons is one of those games, uh, that's unique. You know, it's not like a board game. You could play Dungeons and Dragons for years, you know, and you create a character in the same way you would create a video game character. Your avatar in the video game, you're creating a character that you're playing, but you're playing it in your head as a role play. Uh, and you're playing it with other characters that you come together, you know, in a party setting to accomplish something, you know. You know, recover the stolen crown jewels or, you know, defeat the dragon or whatever it might be. And it's just, it's a lot of fun. And you have, and as for me, as a dungeon master, the person who runs the game sessions for D&D play, you know, you have to be a good storyteller. Because if I'm telling you what's in a room or what's in a cave or what the dragon looks like, I have to be able to describe that to you. And so I think that helped me hone my abilities as a storyteller. And I just had to take that from sort of the spoken word and put it into written form. Uh, and, you know, that was a bit of a, a bit of a chore to learn how to do that instead of, you know, telling you about something that's happening. Now I had to write it and you've got to imagine it in your head and we've got to be close enough uh, that, you know, what I'm saying, and what you're seeing are nearly the same. And I think that was my challenge out of the, out of the gate. But, you know, to your point, um, you, this is, ex- you know, if you like that genre, if you like those books, you know, this is, uh, I think, a story that you'll find endearing. It has a lot of the same struggles in it. You know, there's a coming of age story. There is sort of like a chosen one versus uh false prophet. So there is kind of that, you know, uh, you know, Sauron meets Frodo or Sauron versus Bilbo, you know, that kind of stuff that's, that's, that's in there too, except with different characters and obviously a different plot line, but that's really where it comes mm-hmm. from. And there's such a forbidden love uh and things like that. So you'll, you'll like that. And getting back to your other question, I think the reason that the Lord of the Rings movies were better, and I agree with you 100%, uh, is mm-hmm. that they were all very large books, right? They were epic fantasy novels yeah. in the four or 500 range. And so you could take each of those, like the Fellowship, and make its own movie out of it. What Peter Jackson did was he took The Hobbit, which is a young adult fiction novel that had about 150 pages in it, and tried to make mm-hmm. it, you know, two or three, you know, and, and, at that point, you're now making stuff up and you're putting things in that may not have necessarily belonged in the movie. So and it, and it got a little tiresome. And I think that um, uh, Lord of the Rings was just a better 
series and was easier adaptations. Not that I didn't like The Hobbit, I, I did, but not nearly as much as I liked Lord of, Lord of the Rings. So, yeah, yeah, it's like the the Dark Tower by Stephen King. You'll find that the movies are not that captivating. They're actually more confusing than the book because if you watch the movie itself, it's everywhere. Story is just everywhere. I find it more confusing. Grabbing books themselves, reading the story slowly by slowly, getting the questions on all on your own, getting the answers all on your own. But when you watch the movie itself, it's like they're trying to compensate some of the things they took out from the book. So you find the story is just everywhere and they ruined the thing. It's supposed to be a good book, but they ruined it when they flip it into a show and everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think that's a common problem for many people. I think it, there's a truism there in the sense that when you you always hear when someone says, well, the book was better than the movie. And of course, it's going to be because as you're reading the book, everything is perfectly forming in your head. So that's the way you see it. And even if it was the author said this is blue and you you read it as green, it doesn't matter in your head. It was perfectly formed. And a movie theater or a Netflix show uh, or a TV show of any kind, you know, it's a different medium, right? So instead of mm -hmm. it being immersive and you're sitting by your fire, flipping page by page, engrossed in it, and your own imagination takes over and is spelling it out for you, and you see that character, instead you're seeing an adaptation of that in a different medium. And in this case, it could be film. It could be a different form of art. And so, therefore, it gets distorted, and oftentimes people will say, I like books better than the movie because in their head the book is perfect because that's the way they read it, that's the way they envisioned it. And I'll give you a perfect example of that. Um, I mean, you mentioned mm -hmm. Dark Tower. I'm a big Stephen King fan, too. You know, I write not just epic fantasy, but my fantasy novels also have a bit of a dark spin to them because I like the gothic. I like Bram Stoker and Dracula, and I, I try to instill those things in there because I want my, my villains to I, – I want the people that are reading about my villains to fear them. Uh, or to be, you know, uh, you know, in awe of them and make them a little bit more superhuman, you know. But like I saw, I've been reading the Lee Child's Jack Reacher books for many, many years, and Jack Reacher in the books is like six foot seven, you know, he's this monster of a guy. And then you watch the movie, and it's Tom Cruise, and Tom mm -hmm. Cruise is like five foot six, and it's like, <laughs> wait a minute, that, that's not Jack Reacher, you know. And just because of that, it kind of jars you out of the scene. So I, I get what you're saying, and I think. You know, I try to write my books very, you know, deep in a Tolkien-esque or Hawthornian way that there's enough rich content and and backstory and details uh, that when you walk away, you're like, wow, like I really got engrossed in the realm and I like being in the realm of Warminster in the same way many people like being in, in the realm of Middle-earth for Tolkien. Mm -hmm. Speaking of your books, your covers are spectacular. <laughs> I want to know who is the illustrator because they have done a very fantastic job with these covers. I can't even wait to see what the cover book four will be like. Well, thank you for that. Um, Lars Gallagher did the, the, all of the illustrations. I gave her the ideas for the covers, but she came back and really knocked my socks off with it. And I get more compliments on her covers um, than anything about the books. I mean, people like generally really, uh, really like them. And I think if you saw that, you know, at a on a bookshelf at a bookstore, you're going to pick that book up and turn it over you know, and read mm -hmm. the blurb and see what's inside because they re they really do pop. Mm -hmm. I think I'll I'll you'll need to send me her contact because for the that I'm writing, I think she has to do my illustrations because the <laughs> the story that I have inside 
is so uh, what can I even say? It's so mind-blowingly epic that I myself can't even come up with a cover for my own book because I have all these characters that I want to be on the cover. I want it to be in a certain way, and I think that she's done such a fantastic job with your book. I think I should bring her on to mine as well. <laughs> I'd be <laughs> happy to make the introduction. Yeah, yeah, she's uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, uh, and so when I work with her, it's it's you know I, it's a you know, I think that she, I, mean, I think that culture generally is, is especially like from an illustrated perspective, I think she gets the, the, the idea of what needs to be in this genre. Uh, and, um, you know, I think you'll enjoy working with her. I'll, I'll definitely connect you guys after the show. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's just talk about the books themselves. Starting from book one, sure. I want you to tell us from the cover, how did that, how did you come up with that? How do you want that to be your covers for your book one? Sure. So there's really two main storylines in, in book one yeah, that converge eventually. The, the face in the clouds, almost the godlike face in the clouds, represents one of the main characters named Damus Alaric. And Damus is part of a, of a religious sect that prays to a god of knowledge. And that god bestows knowledge upon his sect through a series of uh, prophecies. Uh, and he's gone to school. You mentioned you liked Harry Potter before. This is not like Hogwarts. This is more like it's called the Cathedral of the Watchful Eye. And he mm-hmm. goes to the cathedral to learn to harness his powers. And many of these seers and prophets see things in a different way. Sometimes they see them reflected in a mirror or other time in a fire or they read cards or they have dice. In this case, Damus sees things in his dreams and they're almost too real for him. Uh, and as a result, he sees the return of a fallen keeper, a man that had this power that used his power in a way that was so, uh, you know, heretical that the um, that their God punished him by stealing his sight and making him blind. And it's taken him 20 years to return to take revenge on the sect. And so Damus is that man in the clouds, and he was born blind. So his eyes are white like you see on the cover. Uh, but even though he was blind, he can – his visions allow him to – uh, to see things that are imparted by his God, this ancient, as I call them, named Arud. And with this blessing, he now has physical sight alongside his metaphysical sight. Um, and so that's the way he, he kind of goes. And he, he learns through his dreams that this man is coming. And really in book one, he's the last keeper, the last person that has this, this knowledge from their gods that can, that can see that the coming of this big, bad, evil guy and what they need to do to stop him. And the other part of it is uh, this dark silhouetted figure on the bridge. Uh, that castle in mm-hmm. the book is known as Castle Vulcanier, uh, and it guards the borderlands uh, from cryptids, these monsters and bad things that roam in the Dragon's Breath Mountains. Uh, and they have this bridge that goes across to the Dragon Breast where you know many traders and merchants and pilgrims all come by, and it's basically the last line of defense. They are on the frontier, and that bridge is guarded by Sir Ritter of Vulcanier, the man that's on the bridge. And he's an elven race, so if you're familiar with Tolkien, I w- he's you know known as a raven elf. But his his plight is that he's of mixed blood. He's part human and part elven, and so he's looked down upon by both cultures. And so his job is really one of the most thankless jobs in the kingdom, which is really – to guard this borderland, even though it's super important for trade and 
super important for, uh, you know, for, for people moving mm-hmm. back and forth throughout the realm. No one else wants it because it's so dangerous. So they give it to this guy. Uh, and it's, it's his, um, for him, it's his validation. It's not only does he take this, this, what in the, in my realm is called trollborn, his, his mixed blood heritage. How could he overcome that? Uh, so that people don't look at him as being mixed blood. They look at him as, as a hero. Uh, and he, of course, meets, uh, Princess Adeline Elspeth, who is a Vermilion elf, uh, the highest caste of elves, and they're not allowed to consort with people of mixed blood. And yet she and Ritter mm-hmm. meet and they have this forbidden romance that starts in book one. Uh, so the cover is really the ominous beginning of the return of this big, big bad evil guy named Great Taurus the Mad. And it features Damus and his sight that is showing the coming of this dark, uh, you know, foreboding, you know, future with Ritter guarding the bridge. And that's really where the, 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 uh, the idea from, uh, for the cover came from. Mm-hmm. And the story itself, the big bad wolf of book one, what's his villain backstory? Sure. So Great Taurus the Mad, uh, is part of the Keepers, which are these guys that, that, and, and gals that, that have this power that's bestowed by the ancient of, of knowledge. And, and their jobs are to go out into the realm, very similar to like maesters from Game of Thrones and they're sages and wise men and women who go and, and counsel kings and queens and emperors and empresses and barons alike. Uh, in the hopes of providing this knowledge that's bestowed by the gods so that they can do the right things and, and govern their people well. Uh, but he, unbeknownst to the reader in book one, you find out a little bit later, he violates the, the one commandment in their faith that they're not allowed to use this knowledge for personal gain. It's like, thou shalt not use this knowledge for thine own gain, basically was what it is. And in the beginning, you don't know why he did it. Uh, but his God punished him because he was so high and he was like the first keeper of the, of the cathedral, sort of like, uh, you know, the, the, the number two guy in all the realm, uh, for this. And the, his God punished him in a way where he not only took his ability to see the future, but he also took his physical sight away from his punishment for using this to it for his own gain. Uh, and he escapes, um, you know, his fate and retreats. Uh, away and you know 20 years pass uh, and he finally regathers enough power to come back and take vengeance uh, on what people think are, are just the cathedral of the watchful eye but in the end it's really on the realm for abandoning him uh, in his time of need uh, and so he he is a, a creature you know that's human but his god has not only stolen his vision but it's literally stolen his eyes and so he has these sort of like eye sockets that bleed very slowly in forever, you know, and so he covers mm-hmm. his face with this, with this, um, uh, this, uh, th- this rag and it just bleeds through all the time. And he's in constant pain as a reminder for what he did. Uh, and he himself is trying to break this curse. Uh, and Damus is in the way of that. And that's how the two come together, uh, for what'll be several epic battles, <laughs> you know, with their, the with their magical <laughs> powers. Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, to, uh, to kind of save the realm. And, and book one is, is Damus learning that he has these powers and learning the return of Great Taurus the Mad, uh, and what he does to get prepared in the future books to, to, to fend him off and hopefully defeat him. 
Mm-hmm. And you know, every story needs like that tiny character who's always on the background, but is always so significant. And readers and also anybody watching is always connected with them, like Dobby in Harry Potter and anybody who has watched, uh, what's this Disney show? Oh my God, what? Moana. There was this chicken. Hey, oh, hey. Yeah. Who are very connected with that chicken. And you didn't want anything bad to happen to it. So in your first book, The Last Keeper, do you find characters like this, they're small, significant to the reader? Yeah, so there's a few, actually. Uh, the yeah, first so. is Sir Ritter of Volcanier, the hero I talked about, the defender of the bridge. He has, because of his elven powers, he has this ability to speak with animals. He has this affinity with animals, and one of them is a falcon named Storm. And Storm doesn't talk, but you know, Ritter can connect with Storm and send the the um, uh, the bird off to do certain things. It can spy on people. It can listen on people, and ultimately it can attack. And he can attack through it. Um, you know, in the same way you find in, in other sort of like fantasy realms, like a, a a black cat or or a rat for a witch, or in Harry Potter, everybody had their own little familiar. Well, Ritter's familiar is this this falcon named Storm. But more to the character point, I think there are really two. One you're going to like and one you're going to hate. Uh, the one that you're going to like mm-hmm. is, a, is a, my version of a halfling or a hobbit called Blue Connie. Now, he's not a hobbit like Tolkien hobbit. This is something called a halterfolk, which is a term that I stole from Scandinavian lore. Um, and, um, you know, the halterfolk, these guys are like basically hobbits on steroids. So imagine a hobbit that went to the gym mm-hmm. three times a day. And he's called Blue Connie because he has a face tattoo that looks like a raccoon that he's painted his face and his face and his forehead are all blue. Uh, and so, you know, and he is sort of the comic relief uh, for the novels. He says all the things you, that you want someone to say that's afraid to say because he has no couth, no diplomacy whatsoever. He's a drinker. He's a carouser. He gets into problems when he shouldn't be, you know, having problems. But he is a monstrous berserker warrior who rides a war dog named Jericho uh, and he fights with these two like razor sharp daggers. And just like a, you know, like a Viking can go into this sort of like reverie and become this berserker character. And so even though he's this small guy, this half the size of everybody else, he fights with the, with the strength of 10 guys. And so, you know, for him, he's funny because I can use him in certain scenarios. I won't give any away until people read it. I think they'll enjoy it. He's, I get more compliments on him and wanting to know his origin story than anybody else, including mm-hmm. the main characters, because he's just one of these comic relief characters, and I think people like him. The other one is on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. He's a man named Incanus Druath, who is a bone elf, and a bone elf is ashen in color, dark in, dark in his hair, uh, and he's an assassin that's sent forth to kill Princess Adeline. Uh, and Ritter and he have this friendly almost Wild West face-off with one another, um, you know, trying, Ritter trying to save Adeline from, you know, uh, from Incanus's attacks, and and then Incanus, you know, being foiled several times by Ritter uh, in the first couple of chapters of the novel, uh, really kind of set the scene for what's going to be, a, a, you know, by book three and four, an excellent epic finish to this this heated rivalry that started between the two. But people like him, I actually got someone say to me at a convention once, please don't kill Incanus. He is your Boba Fett. You know, and people, if you're a Star Wars fan, you know, it's the character everybody loves to hate, right? And, you know, and, and I, I've drawn him up so evilly. Uh, and he does things that you're like, oh, I hate this guy so much. 
but you want him in the novels because he makes it a better, better, uh, uh, you know, sort of like a like better plot line. And he's got his own backstory mm-hmm. that people will find out after the series is over. I plan on writing some of these backstories in small novellas so people can kind of figure them out and who they are. But he's, you know, in, in league with Great Taurus and, uh, you don't necessarily know that in the beginning, but by the end of book one, you kind of figure out they're working together. And, um, you know, the, I think those, those two characters are fun to write because people love them or they hate the, you know, they love to hate them. Uh, and then of course, Storm is sort of my, you know, my pet, my intelligent pet for Ritter. And, and I think that's mm-hmm. fun to have, uh, have that kind of, uh, magical power that, that sets him apart from perhaps other heroes. And I know it must be hard to come up with these characters because I myself have done a whole lot of research trying to find out mm-hmm. what have people written about, what new character can I bring, or maybe you find out, oh, somebody already did whatever I want to do. I know you found out in a very tiresome way that creating characters for a fictional book is hard. It's very, very hard, especially in this age right now. Well, you know, that's where the Dungeons and Dragons comes in. You know, I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons for 20 years since I was literally since I was 10 years old. And um, the uh, the idea that my characters are all battle tested, like I've played them, you know, and, and or players in the game have played them. So they in my head, I've grown up alongside them and they're just as part of my fantasy life. Is there anything else? And all I'm doing is really memorializing them and putting them in places where it makes sense for them in a plot line. You know, where it may not, it's not nearly the same as it was in the game. They're not even in the same campaigns, but you know, you can tell as a dungeon master or even a player in the game when, you know, the dungeon master is describing a scene and everybody's looking at you. You know, when they, there's only a few times when it happens, but you know, when you've got them right on point, like everything you're saying, they're seeing through your eyes. And that's what I want to do as an author. But I've been able to put these characters to the test because their plot lines have intersected and they're the ones that we remember. They're the ones we talk about, you know, when we're together at holidays or, you know, on the weekends and something comes up and you make fun out of somebody. You remember that you throw something at their face because their character did something stupid or or uh, or something that was really funny that you'll always remember. And you try to capture those things because I had a I had a captive audience that saw it. And, you know, when you have six or seven nerds sitting around and everybody thinks it's funny or everybody thinks mm-hmm. it's an epic ending, that's what you want to put in the book because they get they get my genre. They get the storylines. They know it needs to be told. And so when you hand them something that's unique and funny and good and exciting and it works for them, I think that helps me catapult that into the books. Uh, and so my character generation hasn't been nearly as difficult because I've kind of played them. And as goofy mm-hmm. as that sounds – in my role-playing games, I've played them, or someone else has played them, and I've seen how they've played them. So I'm just capturing that and dropping it in. Mm-hmm. Hey, for me, it has been hard because I am about to a character, and then I just, for the sake of it, I just Google and see, has somebody done this? And then I realize, <laughs> oh, my God, I wasn't even the first one on this train because I'm like, what if I do a fusion of everything? And then I realize, oh, somebody already did that, and their book is a hit. So if I do the same... I end up looking like I'm the one who copied them. But in reality, I actually had it in my mind. I thought, what if, or when I'm trying to create a new character down the storyline, it doesn't make sense. It starts going off off the road. I'm like, no, 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 no. With how the story is going, this character should not be here. This character should be killed off. And I end up killing a whole lot of characters. And then I just <laughs> throw away that 
draft and then I begin again and then I'm back to square one. I've actually redone that book four times. I reach a certain <laughs> chapter and I'm like, okay, none of these people make sense anymore because the story has evolved <laughs> and now the characters are just stuck. They look like mediocre characters. I need a new character now. Where do I pop up a new main character from? So I just scrap it. And it, I'm like, it, is it people who just have the same mind as me? Do I have fellow bright, creative individuals surrounding me in this planet <laughs> that they come up with the same ideas that I do? <laughs> because that's, well, you know, the, that's the thing. Yeah, the the answer to that is yes, right? Like, you know, creatives have a tendency to, to create better with one another. Mm-hmm. And I also think that, you know, successful novels follow patterns, right? It's called, you know, there's there's one pattern called the hero's journey, right? And I've seen people, you know, that, that was sort of like, you know, Joseph Campbell describes it as, you know, a way that, you know, people will respond to a certain plot line, right? And so it was used by, you know, George Lucas to create Star Wars. You've got this character who's alone in the beginning and Luke Skywalker, who is he rescued by his parents who aren't really his parents. It's his aunt and uncle. And then something happens. There's an event that happens and sets him off this path to this hero's journey. And then he meets characters along the way that help him fulfill that. And there's there are, you know, inflection points as that happens. And that and if you if you layer that Star Wars, you know, drama on top of Harry Potter, it's the same thing. Harry Potter was also an orphan who was raised by his aunt and uncle or people that didn't necessarily weren't attached to him. And then instead of Obi-Wan Kenobi coming to get Luke Skywalker, Hagrid comes and gets Harry Potter and they go mm-hmm. away where they're trained. One is a Jedi and one is a wizard. And they, they meet the evil bad guys, which are Darth Vader and, uh, you know, and uh, you know, uh, he who shall not be named in Voldemort, you know, and the stories follow the same. And that trope, can pull you through your characters can be different but if you really strip it back it's like the hero's journey is one of those paths or there are writers that use sort of a w format which is you know the you know you start up here at the top of the w and then something happens and the character falls down and the character recovers halfway and then something else bad happens and it falls down and at the end it comes back up and when you're done the plot line looks like a w where it's like good thing bad Almost better, bad again, great, we finished, and the, and the hero wins. And if you write in, the, and people react to that viscerally, you know, and they don't even know what they're listening, watching, reading, you know, or paying attention to, but they're enjoying the story because it's that trope feeling that brings them along. So it's not uncommon that you've mm-hmm. written characters that look like something you've seen because those are characters that have resonated with you, right? And even though your character has a different name and it's set in a different genre and is doing different things, that's okay. People like tropes. That's why they're successful. And also with the hero's journey, you find out that the mirroring factor, which is basically the villain backstory, you realize that even you can begin writing and then your villain's backstory is just in darkness, like vengeance, darkness, vengeance, darkness. (laughs) There's no fault, just going up, 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 up the scale. And then when it reaches its peak, it all just comes crashing down. And then by the time it reaches the bottom, the hero is just standing there and it's like, what next? What, what should I do next? A second book? Yeah. Is there, is the story ending here? Is, is villain coming back? Because it can get dark. It can get dark. There's sometimes you can write and then you get so absorbed with writing about the villain because you realize that there's this proxy where you as the writer, you're not writing as the hero you're writing as the villain so that this story gets good and then the reader is actually not reading as the villain the reader is reading as the hero so when you're trying to balance that proxy you realize you as the writer you get 
in tune with your villain that the story gets so so dark and actually it's it's weird that most stories right now there's this balance because for me I know if I start tuning in with my dark side of my book it will just get dark 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 like please don't read me kind of dark and then it all just comes crashing down again <laughs> because I can't mm-hmm. find that yin and yang where everything can be a perfect balance where my character is growing discovering themselves discovering that oh when i fail i can rise back again and then on the other side of this river i'll have my villain who's trying not to destroy everything in his including himself my book will either have one bad person who's really really bad and you have to channel this really really bad person and either will win or i just go the more classical side like you said where we have a character who's growing who's finding themselves discovering falling again and then rising up and then falling again and then rising up eventually to the top i think a dark book would be great for this generation like a very dark dark book where evil actually wins for the first time yeah you know you see a lot of there's there's a kind of trend in that like the game of thrones not always the good guy doesn't always win Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, you know, there's a choice you have to make for your villains, you know, like in Darth Vader's, you know, example, because we were talking about it, also, so let's use it. You know, he has a shot at redemption, you know, and he chooses to redeem himself in the end and come back to the good side, you know, where Voldemort doesn't. Right. And those are the kind of things you have to you have to balance and decide what kind of, of villain that you want. Is it somebody that's believable? Because it's hard to I think for me as when I read fantasy or sci-fi you know someone who's just evil for the sake of being evil doesn't make much sense like mm-hmm. they, they, something had to happen to them in their backstory and they chose something that typically a person is trying to do the right thing but might do something that isn't right and then they start down a, a, a dark path you know and in the case of, of a good villain you want to have their backstory believable so people can identify with them and say you know what if i were in his or her position i might have done the same thing too um, but let's see how they get out of this or do they, you know, do they continue down that path that they just can't turn it around, you know, and I think that's just as good and just as important as the hero's journey, right? Like they, the hero, you know, does the hero win in the end or does the hero die, you know, or does the hero fail and, and, and why did they fail? And, and you want to cheer for them, but like you said, it's okay to share that, those kind of failures. I mean, look, it's, it's, it's new. People like reading stories, um, that, and that's why I think there was so much of a backlash on Game of Thrones that ended in a way that was really dark, mm-hmm. you know, and people were like, what happened here? And they wanted to cheer for Daenerys Targaryen. And instead they got this bad thing that happens. And you're like, oh, like, that's not how the series should end. But in the end, was it a bad story? You know, there was enough leak that kind of led you to believe that well, maybe there is something here. Uh, and that's exactly what you know, George R. R. Martin delivered, you know, so for, you know, for me, it just depends on the kind of story you want to write. If you want to have a happy ending, great. People like happy endings. If you want to have a dark ending, great. I write dark fantasy. I like dark endings. <laughs> so it's, it's okay if the hero doesn't win or doesn't win completely. Stalemates are fine because it does set mm-hmm. you up for a sequel or a series or, you know, a celebrity death match in book three or 10, whatever it might be. You know, I think that's, that's mm-hmm. that makes a makes for, for good characters and memorable ones at that. Yeah, and speaking of me- memorable characters, in your book, does 
book one just end in a cliffhanger or does it just smoothly pour into book two? Oh, I'll tell you what, it does both. Uh, you know, my when I turned it into uh, my editor, the, the story I had written, I was I was kind of warned, don't have cliffhangers, they're kind of passe, no one does them anymore. And when he read it, he literally made a note saying, this is where your story needs to end, and take the rest of this and push it into book two, just get it out of here, because this will get people to buy book two. And he was right. You know, it literally, even though people were frustrated, they were like, oh, I can't believe you left it there. When's book two coming out? You know, it wasn't like, I'm not going to read book two because I was disappointed. They wanted to know that book two was coming so they could pick up where it left off. And that's where it transitions. And so when The Last Keeper ends, there's a very critical scene in it where one of the characters is facing execution. Uh, and it's what happens there. Do, you know, does, you know, how do they escape that execution or does the execution happen? And that's what mm-hmm. kind of leads you off. And then in the very first chapter of book two, it resolves itself. And then the the the, the next storyline just sort of like takes off from there. Uh, and so Voridin's Lair uh, is a bit, I've, I've, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's my Empire Strikes Back to use another Star Wars term, but it's, it's that middle book mm-hmm. where the characters are being developed. Um, you know, in some cases, like Ritter and Adeline begin to fall in love. Uh, there are other characters like Damus who's starting to find his footing. He's getting better at, at harnessing his powers, but is yet still, uh, you know, any kind of rival for Great Taurus the Mad. Great Taurus the Mad makes inroads, uh, and he starts to, you know, to, to kind of, you know, take the momentum from the battle and has used his, his 20 years of stealth and surprise to, to come onto the world in a big way. And, and that really sets up what will be book three that just launched in July. But here there's this tale of the epic journey. And you said before that you liked um, Lord of the Rings. This is sort of like the Fellowship of the Ring, where the where the, the group mm-hmm. travels a long distance, beats away, you know, evil creatures that are trying to stop them to arrive in the city of Abacus, which is this scholar city, to find this information on how to stop Grey Taurus. And it's buried in these tomes in this mystical library that's part of this ancient giant tree that's in the middle of the city called Voridin's Lair. And Voridin is the aged wizard by sort of Gandalf character that lives in the tree and ha- is a recluse and is kind of pulled away from all society and is just dedicated to his his own passion for education. Uh, and the guy's like, a you know, 5,000 years old, and they have to go see Voridin to find out how to defeat Great Taurus. And it's that journey that brings them from Castleshire to Abacus, and it's what happens along that path. And it's when really those two storylines converge, where Damus meets Ritter and Adeline, and they come together as a D&D party and make their way to, 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 uh, to Abacus to, to on their way to, to a very action-packed book two and book three. <laughs> mm-hmm. So your book two has given us a who is like the grandmaster of that book just like how Harry Potter gave us Dumbledore and also Lord of the Rings gave us Gandalf and then you know Star Wars gave us Yoda <laughs> basically right. you gave That's us right. something similar <laughs> I gave us you I gave, gave us, us that guiding light yeah <laughs> that's exactly right this pillar of knowledge uh that helps both Damus who discovers how to find him because he's reclusive. Don't, he doesn't just see anybody. And then Adeline, who is elven, and Boradin, they find out, is also of an elven descent. 
which is how he lives as long as he does. And it's, it's by her, the nature of her involvement in the book, coupled with Damus's that bring them together and put them in front of this, this grand sage, as you said, uh, that imparts knowledge mm-hmm. that they can use in book three to hopefully turn the tide against Great Taurus and his allies. Yeah, and is is he also as vague as the others? Because you find that the others don't necessarily tell you this is what you're supposed to do. Whatever they tell you is in riddles or maybe so vague that you end up asking what? Is your character also just like that? No, 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 no. In fact, he he, he oh, practices. <laughs> yeah, he practices the Socratic method. Like he sits there and makes them solve it. Like they tell him what their problem is. And then he asks them questions until they figure it out on their own. Uh, and I, mm-hmm. I look at him as almost as sort of like, look, I could probably tell you what to do, but you're going to figure this out on your own. You're going to appreciate it because then you're going to own the solution and you're going to know that it was inside you all the time. Uh, and it almost kind of reminds me of like a lawyer, you're cross-examining a witness where they're trying to extract this information and mm-hmm. the witness has this moment of clarity where they're like, oh, yeah, I get this now. I know why I was called to this to uh to this case same thing with Borden. he calls them in and like socrates sits there and asks them questions until they figure out the riddle that has been plaguing them and it gives them little hints and things like that but it's not very yoda ish um it's not there's there's no riddles that come from him he's there to help them solve the riddle and then he's gone there's like one appearance of Borden in all you know, in the in the four novels uh and it, this is he helps kind of turn that tide away from all this momentum that's going for Grey Taurus and his allies into something where now there's a there's a spark of hope that they now know how to possibly beat this guy and what his weaknesses are and know more about him. And then they that's what happens in book three. Mm-hmm. And speaking of book three, you told me that it's not out yet. It will be out in a couple of weeks. But just looking at the cover, just looking at the cover that's out there on your website, I can tell that this book will be a fan favorite. <laughs> I'm because glad you like the it. cover holds so much. You can just see from the cover it's not what is in book one, what's in book two. Book three is like there to slap your face with information and tell you, you know what? This is gonna get dark, this story is gonna get epic, and you won't put this book down. Is that what the book basically is, even without giving you, us all you the nailed it. You nailed it. It's it's the cover that features Damus and Grey Taurus, right? You've got this, you, you've got Damus who, I'm not going to tell you what the candle's for, but, you know, he enters, mm-hmm. you know, the, the book into Although we can something see it. called, <laughs> yeah, that's right, you know, the Trillius Gambit, you'll figure that out by, by the time you get to chapter three or four, you'll know why he's carrying a candle, but it's him and his white eyes, and it's him and his candles leading him through this darkness, and on the other side of the darkness is this this character who has now transformed himself into a magical creature called a lich. He's no longer human because he was, you know, there's reasons for what he's doing. I don't want to get into a ruined story, but he's now taken on this mm-hmm. almost undead-like form uh, so that he can continue his battle in an eternal battle against his this his god that he cannot, you know, that he's, he's trying to take revenge on, and Damus is in his way, and it's those two guys coming together to smash heads and, in book three and eventually book four, uh, which um, is you know still you know a little bit uh, ways off. That won't come out to the end of the year. But the Trillius Gambit, I'm I'm looking forward to because I it's one of those books where I wrote it 
and I was shaking my head saying, I don't, I don't know that was this good. And then everybody, my beta readers, my publisher, my, my editors have all read it and they're like, Oh, this is, this is, this will set up such an epic ending, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, and for me, I'm like, I just want to write the epic ending, you know, but I didn't, so I didn't want to rush through this. And I think it, it comes down in a way that most fans of fantasy or any kind of like legend and lore, you're going to find some, you know, Greek mythology, mythology, and there's some Native American mythology, and there's some Scandinavian mythology mixed in alongside this entirely unique magic system that brings everything together with this pantheon of gods. Um, and, you know, Trillius, uh, from those who've read the first book, understand that he's the god of sport and test. And so Damus, in order to get the knowledge that he needs to defeat Great Taurus has to take the Trillius Gambit. And I'll leave it at that. He he makes a bet mm. and goes and challenges the god in this sort of like epic, you know, challenge. Uh, and if he succeeds, he wins the knowledge and the in the power that he needs. And if he fails, not good stuff happens to him. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and even though we can't talk about book three and book four in depth because they aren't out yet and one isn't even finished, I'm sure that by the end of the year if all goes well and there are no hiccups along the way, people will have these books on their shelves. The whole entire collection, like I said, this is not something you can just read online. The covers themselves are worth displaying. So I think even <laughs> just before you think of getting the ebook version, you should just invest on getting the actual paperback or hardcover of this book. Do you have hardcovers of these books, by the way? Uh, people can order hardcovers. They just have to ask me online uh, because it, my publisher does paperback, ebook, and they're available on audiobook. But hardbacks, we can special order for people if they want them. I, I'm the same way. I have my libraries all hardbacks, and I use the paperbacks until they're falling mm. apart. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, collector's items, these are books that are both being collector's items. Because, oh, imagine displaying all four of them. I can't wait to see the fourth cover. And just imagine displaying all four of them separately in like one row, one shelf, and then everybody coming to your house and like, what is that? <laughs> what is that? I have to read it well, that, because that's the realm of war the book mystery, sells right? it. You got it, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear you Basically, say that. I know the will be too. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure I'll I'll just link everything in the description, and I'll make sure everybody checks it out every single time so that they can be sure when the next books are mm-hmm. out, because the third book is in six weeks, and then hopefully by the end of the year we'll have the fourth book, and sadly the last part of the story, because even, <laughs> the snowflakes, even just the snippets like you told us, the story seems amazing. It seems like a real page-turner when you when you come to think of it, actually. Well, I hope I hope you like it, and I hope those that might watch this pick it up and, and take a look at it. You know, I wanted to make sure it was available and as many formats as possible because I know people like to read in different ways and people like even I cheat and use the audiobook stuff when I'm traveling because it's a little easier than, than having I just pop it in my ear and listen to it. Uh, but you know, I'm, I'm excited about it. I've had people ask me what's next and I can't even get into that because book four is not done yet. Uh, but I'd like to maybe do some origin stories of some of the more popular characters so people can see the backstory of them in the same way you learn about superheroes in the same way. Like, Hey, how did, how did Batman come to be? And tell me about his backstory or, you know, what, whatever it's like wonder woman, you know, and in, in, in the most recent uh, iteration of, of Marvel or DC, I, I, I see the same thing for here. A lot of folks are asking me for it. So I think that's the next thing that'll bridge before that in the next series. 
Yeah, but I think that sticking with a similar series like this one would also be epic, like coming up with a new story, a new map, new characters, totally different concept. I think that... I already got it. I got it. You already do. Great. It's ready to roll. It's ready to roll. Yep. Uh-huh, because I'm sure your audience will be sad if they realize, oh, my God, we just have four of this. What if we had four? What if we had a new map? And maybe, hopefully, if we join the maps, it becomes an entire world, because that would be epic. Yeah, that's what I'm working towards. So they could find the map online. I've also put the maps in the books. I put a a, um, a glossary of a terms in the third one so people could reflect on that so they know who, you know, people are what monsters are i've also added a uh a couple of um uh, family trees so you could follow along in, in book two it was sort of like the, the seven baronies in book three it's going to be about um elven cultures stuff like that in book four we'll have a couple more surprises for everybody too mm-hmm. i'm actually looking at that map right now i can see everything and i'm loving it like the sylvan forest and the bay of denial like the names are so original like, it's just like any other map you would see of an old world and something, but it's something new. You know, most maps in stories, you just look at them and they're like, oh, this is not something that could exist in the real world. But this, I actually see this being somewhere. Like, if you would give me a map of the old world somewhere in maybe the Nordic days, this could be some place that actually really existed back then. Yeah, and that's what I'm hoping for. It's something that's... it's believe Wait. you know something that a, like a medieval culture could believe in yeah are there any conventions or maybe uh let me see yeah basically conventions that people can meet you at maybe grab a book meet the author something like that yeah sure i'm going to be in raleigh uh north carolina in uh july for galaxy con uh i'll also be in austin a little later on in the year in texas for another galaxy con and the last Galaxy Con of the year will end up in Columbus around, uh, I think it's November or December. I'll also be in New York for the big Comic-Con in October. Uh, and uh, I'm going to do some regional stuff. I live in Pittsburgh. Um, so if you're in the area, I often make my way to bookstores or book clubs and or, you know, smaller venue, uh, you know, conventions like Steel City Con or Sci-Fi Valley or you know, uh, others that are in the Pittsburgh or Cleveland or Buffalo areas, you'll see me around there because uh, those are easy drives. But the Galaxy Con and the Comic Cons are bigger ones. So um, if they if they live closer to any of those places, they can find me there throughout the year. I have a spot on my website that kind of has a coming event so you can look and, and see where I'm going to be. Uh, and that'll that'll drive you to where I'm going to be. Or you can always reach out to me and I can tell you where I'm going to be near you. And you can come out and see me and put a name of the face. Mm-hmm. I'll just link your website in the description and also link the dates on our latest post so that everybody can see it, know where to find you. Maybe fans are not aware. We'll link it. We'll share on social media. We'll share everywhere, basically, (laughs) so they can come meet you, come see your books in person, probably get it signed before you get all famous. You get all (laughs) sticking king on us. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, please, please. I would be more than happy to sign any book anybody brings to me. I was already humbled enough that they would care. I had one guy bring me a baseball card with my face on. He he has author cards, like baseball cards. And uh-huh. I signed it the, while I was there. He was looking for me to sign one. Of, and he just makes them as a hobby and collects them. But it's all authors. And he finds you at the conventions that you're at and approaches you and you just sign away. So, you know, for me, I was I was humbled by that. I thought that was a really cool 
um, you know, uh, you know, idea. And it's one that, you know, uh, I, I remember that one because it was so unique. It wasn't me just signing my book. It was a guy who made a baseball card of me and came up and said, please sign your face. So it was a lot of fun. Uh-huh. Now you're in a card laminated in someone's I... <laughs> bedroom in a showcase glass. People say, you know what? That's my favorite author. He signed that card. <laughs> I, in a weird kind of way, I, I like that and I don't at the same time. <laughs> uh-huh, it's weird, but, it's, it's but great. It's, it's weird uh, it's and great. It's a lot of fun. A lot of fun. A lot of fun. Mm-hmm. But as we end this episode, what would be your author's note to the audience about these books themselves? Yeah. So two things. If you like the novels, uh, in 2024, I've licensed the intellectual property uh, for, from the novels to a video game company that's making an augmented reality video game out of the realm of the Rooms game. So if you've ever played Pokemon Go, uh, in 2024, a very similar game, uh, called the Realm of Warminster will be out, launched by Melderverse Studios. Uh, and then in 2025, they're gonna have the virtual reality video game come out as part of that too. So we've got that on one rail. The other rail is I just started to convert my book into a graphic novel. So fans of comics and more adult themed graphic novels, uh, you know, within the next year, we'll be able to, uh, you know, buy the story in a much different way. Uh, you know, your, your pictures and not a lot of, of my 500 page, you know, novels, but this is going to be more like a, you know, a, a decent sized comic book, uh, that they can, they can pick up that, uh, is going to kind of encapsulate that. And I saw the, I just saw the first six frames that are going into it on Sunday night. Uh, and I'm excited about that too. So uh, if they like the stories, be on the lookout. 2024 and 2025 are going to be big, um, big years uh, for graphic novels and for video games. And that'll also help me get a little downtime to start to launch the next series uh, in the novels as well. Mm-hmm. Well, good luck to you on that. And I hope I'd be among the first to test the VR games because yeah. – when it comes to comparing between the comics and the games, I am more of a gaming girl, so I hope to test that. Because maybe, maybe next year I'll be starting a brand new YouTube channel for this podcast yeah. and also like a main channel where I test games. Because a lot of others come here and then they're like, oh, have you played this game? Have you watched this? I was like, mm, maybe, maybe this is an idea for a brand new YouTube channel. And maybe your yep. game could be the first that I test, but I personally I would be, test. I would love to have that happen. Let's coordinate that offline for sure. And I'll introduce you to the CEO of the video game company as well, because uh, I think he'd make a very good interview for your new YouTube channel. Oh, I'd love that. But anyway, yeah. thank you so much for being part of this particular episode. And hopefully maybe we'll have you on again where you can teach us about the secrets of D&D. For some of us, or maybe I would just love to on do this that. planet who doesn't know how to play it. <laughs> I would love to do it. I'll give it a tutorial for everybody. We could spend some time going through it, and, and I'll walk you through a, a battle scene. I'll make, you, I'll make you have to roll some dice, and you'll have a good time with it. Uh, true, because I'm sure you can play D&D from any part of the world. You don't have to be physically there. You can do it on Skype. You can do it on Zoom. You can basically even imagine yourself playing with somebody else. I'm sure you can do anything with D&D. Yeah, <laughs> no, I do that us. now. Yeah, my, my, my friends and I get together 6 to 10 on Sunday nights, and we're all scattered around the country uh, and all in different phases of our life. Some of us have kids, some of us have school, some of us have work that takes us away, and we've moved away. 
Uh, but we've continued to play and we do it on Skype on weekends on uh, Sunday, six to 10. And, you know, like you said, you can do it from anywhere. So. Mm-hmm. So maybe we'll have you another day here and then you can talk about D and D learn the secrets, learn how to be a game master, you know, would, would love to do that. Happy to do it. Yeah. But anyways, for all those listening, just tune into this episode so that you can know when we are uploading next and share with your friends, with your family. Tell them we have a new author here who's going to teach us a couple of things in a couple of episodes. <laughs> and also check out the links in the description because his website is a place you should land on. Check out his books as well. Leave a rating. Ratings are good. Comments are good. These are things that authors love. We love to hear about what you think about our books because not everybody will love it. Some people will have right. something to criticize about it. Somebody will have something to tell you, oh, I really don't like your book because it's this and this and this. Or, oh, your book is missing this and this and this. Or maybe your book is not traditional enough for me. So send all your comments, good or bad. <laughs> We're not haters here. We love the critics. We love the feedback. And until I see you guys next time, stay tuned and also check out our second podcast for anybody who loves spooky things. We're on there talking about horror things. We're talking about UFOs. We are talking about paranormal stuff. So if you enjoy those things, just tune in on there. And I'll see you guys next time. Bye.